0: Let us now turn to Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is found on page 485 of your books of praise. Lord's Day 12. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? Because he has been ordained by God the Father and anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption, our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us and who continually intercedes for us before the Father and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Why are you called a Christian? Because I am a member of Christ by faith, and thus share in his anointing, so that I may as prophet confess his name, as priest present myself a living sacrifice of thankfulness to him, and as a king fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. After the proclamation of the word, let us respond by singing together Psalm 51, stanzas 5 and 7. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the term Christ is very familiar to us. We often speak about Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, and sometimes we mention Christ on its own. Often we treat this title Christ as if it were a name. Actually, it's a title. It's a title just like reverend or doctor or professor. We also speak about being Christians very often. What is a Christian? Some people think that if you're born in the Western Hemisphere, you must be a Christian. And if you're born in the Eastern Hemisphere, you must be a Muslim or a Buddhist. Others think that if you have been baptized, that makes you a Christian. Even if you never profess your faith in Christ and even if you never come to church. What then do these familiar terms of Christ and Christian mean? What does it mean that your Savior is called Christ, and what does it mean for you that you are a Christian? This afternoon we will look at these questions as we deal with Lord's Day 12 under the following heading, The Office of Christ and the Office of the Christian. And we'll see three things concerning this office. We'll see the calling to office. We'll see the tasks of the office bearer. And thirdly, we will see the effectiveness of the office. The office of Christ and the office of the Christian. The calling to office, the tasks of the office bearer, and the effectiveness of the office. Already in paradise, God decided that he would work in man. And through man, God made Adam and placed him in the garden of Eden. There God gave Adam a task. He had the task of tilling the soil. He had to be fruitful and he had to rule over the animals. So already at this stage, we see that God had a purpose for man to serve God and to bring glory to God. As a result of the fall into sin, God instituted offices so that there were people who were appointed to minister to the people. In Israel, among the nation of Israel, God raised up three kinds of office bearers. He raised up prophets, priests, and kings. And it was through these office bearers that God worked among the Israelites so that they would believe and so that they would serve God and seek their salvation in God. They were to lead the people. How did one become a prophet or a priest or a king? In the case of the priests or the kings, you had to be a descendant of a priest or a king in order to be one yourself. In the Old Testament, priests and kings were anointed into their office. This anointing happened when oil was poured on the head of the person who was made a priest or a king. It showed that the priest or king was installed not only by, being virt- by the virtue of being the descendant of a prophet or a king, it meant that the one who was anointed was one that God had called to serve him. And that meant that God would equip that person with the Holy Spirit so that they could carry out their office. This oil represented the Holy Spirit. When someone received that oil on the outside of the body, God was promising his Holy Spirit inwardly. On their own, these priests and kings were sinful human beings. They could not carry out their office on their own because of their sinfulness. But God promised to strengthen them and God promised to enliven them so that they could carry out their offices. That is why God gave them the Holy Spirit so that they could lead the people toward the Lord. Now in the case of the prophets, there is only one case of an anointing and that is the prophet Elijah was commanded to anoint Elisha as his successor. In all other cases, God raised up prophets to proclaim his words without anointing. God worked through the prophets directly through his Holy Spirit. God could raise up anyone at any time to be a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, God promises, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, From among their brothers, I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I command him. Now this passage points eventually to Christ's office as prophet, but also when God raised up prophets in Israel. He could raise them up at any time. They didn't have to come from a prophetic family. God could call them from anywhere. We can also notice that there were some men in the Bible who held more than one office at a time. There were many priests who were also prophets, like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They were prophets, we know that, but they were also priests at the same time. We also know of a Melchizedek, and he was both a priest and a king at the same time. So it was possible to be more than one office-bearer at a time in the Old Testament. But these offices were always marked by a sense of incompleteness. None of these office bearers could remove sins fully. They could punish crimes. They could rebuke sins. They could offer sacrifices for sins. But they could never put an end to sin. Furthermore, in the Old Testament, these offices themselves were constantly marred by sin. There were unfaithful priests like Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. Priests who were greedy for their own gain. Priests who were not willing to serve. There were many unfaithful kings in Israel like Jeroboam, Ahab, Ahaz, Zedekiah, and many more. Many kings were unfaithful in their task of leading the people. And many kings led the people of Israel to worship idols instead of the Lord. Then there were unfaithful prophets. There were many false prophets in the Old Testament as well. For example, there was one named Hananiah, whom Jeremiah had to deal with. This prophet was prophesying lies in God's name. And that is why God eventually sent the perfect office bearer into the world, his own son, Jesus Christ, Our Lord Jesus could take away sins. He could do this. None of his predecessors could. He could offer perfect leadership to us, which no prophet or priest or king could do or did. In Christ we see perfectly what we saw imperfectly in the Old Testament offices. He was anointed and given the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet, teacher, and king, and priest. Like some of the men of old, Christ holds multiple offices. Not two, as some in the Old Testament, but Christ holds all three offices at once. And in doing so, he fulfilled the three Old Testament offices fully, and he actually made the Old Testament offices individually obsolete. Christ was anointed unto office. That's why he is called Christ. He was anointed by John the Baptist. Just before John baptized Jesus, he objected, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Because John realized that he was inferior to the Lord Jesus. But look at Jesus' answer. He says, Let it be so now, for it is proper to do this to fulfill all righteousness. In this we see the reason why Jesus had to be appointed to the office of Christ. He had to do so to fulfill all righteousness. He had to become an office bearer in order to make things right between God and us. Some might ask, Why is Jesus called Christ if he was only baptized? He was never really anointed. Why do we call him anointed since he was never truly anointed? To answer this question, we have to see that link between the Old Testament offices and Christ. Christ was entitled to be an office bearer, not by being the son of a priest or a king, but by being the son of God. God designated him before the creation of the world for this office of saving us and making us righteous that we read about in 1 Peter 1 verse 20. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus when he was baptized, just as the Holy Spirit was symbolized by anointing. Then Christ fulfilled all three offices, and he continued to do so right now, as we will also see in our last point. Thus we see that Christ had all the elements necessary so that we can call him our anointed office bearer. And that's also why the early Christian church called him Christ. We notice that in Acts 10 verse 38, when Peter, the Apostle Peter, is speaking to Cornelius, one of the Romans to become a Christian he says God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and the early Christian church recognized that the Lord Jesus fulfilled the office of the expected Messiah in other words the Christ Messiah is the Hebrew word which means anointing and Christ is the Greek so it means the same thing Jesus, our Lord Jesus Jesus is that Christ? He is that anointed one. Our catechism does not stop after explaining the term Christ. It also asks, why are you called a Christian? Now this question does not come out of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed does not mention the word Christian after Christ. But it does come out of the title Christ. Although the individual offices of prophet and priest and king were made obsolete, that threefold combined office of Christ has not ended. Not only does God's Son have the title of Christ, but also all of God's children have the title of Christ, of, of Christians, sorry. And that title means that you belong to Christ and that you share in his anointing doesn't mean that you have the exact same office as Christ, but it means that you have a similar office of prophet and priest and king. It means that you too share in that threefold office. When did you come to share in that office? When did you come to be a prophet and a priest and a king? Well, unless you can look back to your baptism... You were baptized into the name of the Son, the Christ. That means that you are all office bearers. It's not only the people who walk out of that door at the beginning of the service who are office bearers. It is also the people who come in through those two doors that are office bearers in the church. As Peter said, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Notice there that all three offices are mentioned. It says that you are a royal priesthood. We have the idea of a king there. It says that we are a priesthood. So here we have the idea of the priesthood of all believers And finally, it says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, who does declaring? Is it none other than the prophets who do the declaring? So in this statement, we see all three offices that royal priesthood points to our offices of priest-king. And also, we have the office of prophet Declaring the praises of God is part of our task. And so you share in all these offices and you have an official task as a Christian. That brings us to our second point. Anyone who is an office bearer has a task. In, the ancient, in ancient Israel, the prophets had the task of proclaiming God's word directly to the people. God spoke directly through the prophets. They were led by the Holy Spirit. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit in an extraordinary manner. The prophets often reproved the people for their constant sinfulness. They also proclaimed to the people the future events. They would proclaim what God was planning to do among his people they also prophesied about the coming prophet, the coming Messiah, the Christ who would be the fulfillment of their office. So the the office of the prophet was an office of proclamation. Now the priests had more the task of mediating for the people. They had the messy task of cutting up sacrificial animals. They had to light them on fire on on the altar, They had to take the offerings and present them to the Lord as atonement for sin. They also had the task of praying. Their office was also an office of prayer. They would pray on behalf of the people. And they also had the task of teaching the people. So the office of the priest was primarily an office of intercession. So the prophets brought communication from the Lord... And the priests brought communication to the Lord. And then we also have the kings. The kings would rule the people. The kings had the task of fighting the enemy nations who wanted to take over Israel. They also had to fight the evil which happened inside the nation. They had to restrain wickedness and crime. It was often the kings that took away the idols in Israel and Judah in the Old Testament. It didn't happen very often, but it did happen a few times. And it was the kings who led the way in removing the idols, kings like Josiah and others. And the office of the king was also one of governing. So we have these three offices in the Old Testament, and each had its own specific place and task in Israel. Now, when we come to the New Testament, we see that Christ fulfills these three offices. His office is an office of proclamation and of intercession and of governing. Christ proclaimed to the people the gospel of salvation. The Lord Jesus taught the people during his three-year ministry in Israel. We can read about that in the Gospels. He had the task of proclaiming freedom from captivity to sin for us. His ministry was also a teaching ministry. He taught the people in his many parables, and his many sermons. But let's not forget, just after Good Friday, that Christ's death on the cross was also part of his prophetic task. On the cross, our Savior proclaimed freedom from sin. And Christ proclaimed this loudest. When at the end, he said, it is finished. He was then proclaiming to us that we were free from our sins. Because he had paid for them. When Christ hung on the cross, he also hung on the cross as a priest. The letter to the Hebrews speaks extensively about how Christ was both the priest who offered himself up on the cross, and at the same time, he also was the sacrifice for our sins. He offered himself up willingly. It was not just Pilate or the Jews who offered the Lord up. The Lord also offered himself willingly on the cross. And Christ's priestly task was not just over, once he had died on the cross, he also continues to stand between us and, between, and God every time we sin and he offers his own sacrifice to the Father as proof that our sins are forgiven. Christ also reigns over us as our King. He is the shepherd and overseer of our soul. He works in our hearts through his Holy Spirit as our King. He defends us from evil and from the great enemy, Satan. That's what Christ does as our king. He also acted as a king when he was on the cross. He was not only put above the cross in a message. This was Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. But in the cross, Christ triumphed over sin. There he won the war. He was victorious over sins. This is kingly work that Christ did on the cross. Do you see how Christ's three offices thus come together on the cross? Christ suffered on the cross as our great prophet and priest and king for our salvation. He fulfilled this threefold office which man could not fill because of his own fall into sin. Christ's threefold office also leads us to our threefold office. We too have a prophetic, a priestly, and a royal ministry. We're all prophets. We all have the prophetic task of proclaiming who our God and Savior is and how much he has done for us. We have to proclaim this to those who do not know Christ. We have to evangelize in our community. That is part of our prophetic task. But that's not the only part of our prophetic task. Another important aspect is that we must never deny Christ. Because if we deny him, he will deny us. And he will have nothing to do with us, especially on judgment day. Therefore, don't deny Christ, either with your words or your actions. You can deny Christ if you live a sinful lifestyle. But we read in the Bible that we must live such good lives that even the pagans will see our good deeds and glorify God. What kind of a proclamation are you making by your lifestyle? Are you glorifying God? Or are you denying him? We also have the task of proclaiming Christ to each other as well. We have to remind each other of what it means to be a Christian. Part of the prophetic task we're called to is the task to admonish each other. We have to admonish each other about each other's sins, just as the prophets of old admonished the people for their sins. We have the office of confronting those in our midst who sin on the basis of God's word, and we have to call them to repent. So if someone's under discipline, we should not just think that, well, the elders will take care of it, that's their job. Yes, it is their job. But it's also the job of all of the rest of us to admonish that person. We can all write letters and we can all make phone calls to tell that sinner to repent and turn to the Lord and be saved. Another role, or another part of our prophetic role that we should not forget about is participation in the worship service. In order to be equipped for this task of of, uh, proclaiming Christ in our lives, we also have to pay attention to the proclamation of the Word. If we just sit back, In church and relax and fall into sleep. We will not be equipped for our prophetic task as Christians. And what about the other parts of the liturgy? When we have Lord's Supper, every time you come forward to the Lord's Supper table to partake of the Lord's Supper, you proclaim the death of Christ until he comes, the Apostle Paul said in one Corinthians eleven verse twenty six. So walking up to the table is part of your prophetic task. Do we also think of singing as part of our prophetic task? The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 3 verse 16, we read this this morning, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. So we have the task of letting the word of God dwell richly among us. And we can do this by singing. That's part of our prophetic task. There's some people who barely participate in the singing. Their lips barely move, and they make almost no sound while everybody else is singing here. Now, I know that we're not all good singers but we still have that task to sing, not for our own glory, but we have to sing for God's glory. And for each other's edification as well, I might add. We also have a priestly task. We have to make living sacrifices of thankfulness. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2 explains this further. Your priestly task is one of making sacrifices. It doesn't mean that we have to sacrifice animals like they did in the Old Testament, but we do have to give things up. We have to sacrifice things like our pride. It's difficult to sacrifice our pride. It's difficult to give it up. We also have to realize that we sacrifice by putting to death our sinful nature, And also, we have to make other kinds of sacrifices. It costs a great deal of money and time to be a Christian. And yet we're called to make these sacrifices, to serve God. That's a part of our priestly office. How do we make these sacrifices? Do we donate money with a begrudging attitude? Do we complain that being a Christian means... That there's so many things that we can't do. Our priestly task is to offer sacrifices of thankfulness. If they're not done out of thankfulness, then they're hardly sacrifices at all. Finally, we also have the royal task of fighting against sin as we look forward to the day that we will reign over all creatures. As God's children, we are royalty. We're all kings and queens, brothers and sisters. This means that the Lord regards us with a special elevated position. It also means that we have many responsibilities. We have to fight against sin and the devil. Any prince who welcomes the enemy into the realm and allows the enemy to take over, any prince that does that is a traitor Is he not? Brothers and sisters, we must not allow the enemy to come in and take over. Fulfill your royal tasks. Do not be a traitor to the Lord who saved you from the enemy. We must remember that when we fulfill our tasks as prophets and priests and kings, we are effective instruments in the hands of the Lord. And that brings us to our third point. As I mentioned earlier, the offices in the Old Testament of prophet and priest and king were marred by constant unfaithfulness. The prophets and the priests and the kings could not stop sinfulness in Israel, nor were they able to deal with the sins of everyone at every time. The scope of their work was limited. Now this is not to say that the offices were necessarily useless because of this, God used these Old Testament office bearers constantly to lead his people despite their sins and weaknesses. Throughout the Old Testament, it was God who gave meaning and direction to these offices. These special offices directed the attention of the people to their sinfulness and to their forgiver and to their great king and leader. And thus we see that the scope of Christ's work was not limited. He works everywhere in the world, and he works at all times. He is able to save believers from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve in paradise. He's also able to save future generations that are not yet born, and everyone in between who turns to the Lord. More importantly... Look at what Christ's threefold office has done for you in your life. If Christ did not have the office of prophet, you would not know about salvation. If Christ did not have the office of priest, there would be no sacrifice for sins and you would be dead in your sins. And if Christ was not your king, no one would protect you and fight for you And you would be the living dead, dead in sin, that is. Do you see, then, that your salvation hinges on the threefold office of Christ? And now you have the command to live as a Christian. Live as one who has these similar offices to Christ. Live as a prophet who proclaims God's word boldly. Live as a priest by offering sacrifices to God and fight sin and the devil like a king. Sometimes you might get the feeling that being a Christian is somewhat of an exercise of futility. When we look at our sins and weaknesses and we see them, we might be discouraged to the point that we wonder Why am I even bothering to try so hard? Why not just enjoy life a little? Because I can never live up to the requirements for my office. We must remember that our task is never a futile task. Yes, your tasks are marred by sin, just like those offices in the Old Testament were. But you still have the calling to persevere. When the going gets tough, Christians look up to Christ. He is the office bearer who fulfilled these offices before us. Let us remember that he is the one who makes your offices effective. Your task is not a futile task. It's a glorious task. You may not see the results the way you would like to see them in this life. But remember that God is at work in you. And his purpose will stand. Live your lives faithfully. And even if you feel that you have not succeeded, remember, it is God who is at work in you. Remember, Christ fulfills his office in a perfect way so that you may be saved. Since Christ has saved you, you now have the task to do the work of the offices of the Christian Therefore, serve the Lord faithfully in your offices of prophet, priest, and king. Fulfill your ministry. Amen.